I have never done marijuana or been around weed. That's Imayan Ibanga, a presenter with Al Jazeera's AJ+. Which is funny that I even did this story because of that. (laughs) Because I have no interaction with weed. She recently traveled to Chicago to explore Illinois' booming weed business. Marijuana sales hit a high, a new high in Illinois in 2021. Nearly $1.4 billion in cannabis was sold. But marijuana history in the U.S. is deeply rooted in racism. For decades, it has been black and brown folks who have borne the brunt of the so-called war on drugs. Illinois promised access to cannabis licenses for communities of color affected by the war on drugs. But is this equity system still failing black and brown people? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Am I in? In 2020, Illinois became the 11th U.S. state to legalize marijuana for recreational use. So in the two years since, what's happened when it comes to the business of weed in Illinois? The business of weed in Illinois is big bucks. The difference between 2020 and 2021 in terms of sales and revenue for marijuana in Illinois is huge. In 2021, They made more than a billion dollars by year's end in those 12 months, which is exponentially more than they made in the first year. So explain the difference between recreational and medical marijuana when it comes to Illinois. Recreational marijuana was legalized in the state of Illinois on January 1st, 2020. And that's years after medical marijuana, right? Which means they have to have specific kind of regulation around it and only certain people could have it under specific conditions. Now with the legalization of recreational marijuana, what it does is it opens up that customer base even more. Mm. But here's the thing. This is the caveat in that that I hope the audience really takes home. That is not true for everyone. Because in fact, if you are living in federal housing, if you are, which is subsidized housing, if you are on subsidized food assistance and things of that nature, it's illegal on the federal level. What Amayan is saying here is that in the U.S., federal and state housing programs for low-income residents do not permit the use of medical or recreational marijuana. For example, the U.S. Controlled Substances Act states that marijuana is an illegal substance and any use, possession, or distribution of this material is illegal. So if someone is caught consuming weed while living in low-income housing, it could lead to a denial of living or termination of tenancy. So there is no legalization period in the United States. We can say that things are legalized from state to state, but my question would be, is it legalized if it's illegal on the federal level and federal law trumps state law? Mm -hmm. So you could be evicted for that. You could be arrested for that. You're not supposed to possess it. You cannot sell it. You cannot participate in this industry. So let's break that down. As of February 2022, 37 states and four territories allowed for the medical use of cannabis products in the U.S. And 18 states, 
two territories and the District of Columbia have some type of regulations for non-medical use of cannabis, so recreational. So we are talking, as you mentioned, billions of dollars in profit every year. But of course, it is still illegal on a federal level. And there are many people who oppose cannabis consumption altogether who might think, this is wrong. So why was it important for you to talk about access for all when it comes to this business? I think it's important for me to talk about access for all in this business because there are two things. One is the idea of who was most harmed when we look at historically how marijuana has been regulated and criminalized. Because of the war on drugs. President Richard Nixon launched the war on drugs in June of 1971. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. The war on drugs is really not a war on drugs, it's a war on people. In the US, close to 80% of people in federal prison for drug crimes are black or Latinx. Black people and brown people exponentially suffered more from that ongoing war, because technically it has not ended, than other residents in the U.S. And so now when you're looking at trying to decriminalize and legalize even federally, you have to look at all the people who were harmed and if they would even be able to get access into this business. So that's one thing that was really intriguing to me because it's a business who my subjects say was built on the backs of Black people. We were the ones arrested for it. We were the ones distributing it. We were the ones that created mastermind enterprises <laughs> illegally, or the legacy industry is because of us. And so now, having state and federal governments monetize that is really important when we look at harm and harm reduction and equity and what this means for the business. Tell me about Belisha Royster. Felicia Royster is a woman who grew up on the south side of Chicago, and she is a woman who has had a lot of interaction with weed. She has a brother in jail currently because of charges related to weed, and she is now a woman who wants to get in on the ground floor of this enterprise. So she sees this as a way to bring equity to Black people who she feels have done so much for the U.S., but without any sort of give back from their own government, any sort of reparation. This is an industry that we deserve to be a part of. So all we ask is that we're not locked out and we're given a fair opportunity to buy our tickets of financial freedom and generational wealth. One of the things she discussed was how she remembers seeing as a kid her neighborhood change with the war on drugs. And I had asked her when we were walking around South Shore, which is where she grew up. How many people did you know that got caught up in the criminal justice system because of weed? Several. Too many to even put like, a place a number on, really. Several. It was nothing to be smoking in the park and just smoking it, not even selling it, and get in trouble for weed. So for someone like that to have a chance at an opportunity, I think Belisha feels like she's got to try and take it. So she's one of the people who applied for a social equity license that Illinois is designating specifically for people from communities that are disproportionately impacted or were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. What was that process like? The process of securing a license is a process that is about money and about access. Because although you can apply for 
one license, which still costs a substantial amount of money, you can apply for as many licenses as you can afford. And that's just the application. All applications are graded on a point system by the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Then the applicants with the most points enter a lottery. The winners of the lottery get a license. Belisha didn't qualify. The state allocates 250 points maximum for one of these cannabis licenses. Belisha got a 247 on one of her applications and a 243 on another. And so what it did was it created all these categories and it specified a certain amount of points per category. For example, social equity was worth 50 points. We know Belisha was a social equity applicant. And then they had things like five points for veterans. And so someone scores your application. You get a number and then go into the lottery. What ended up happening was they had several applicants who got perfect scores, which is something someone like Belisha hadn't anticipated. And so when they distributed the licenses, they went to 21 groups with perfect scores. What was she missing? Belisha says what she was missing was being perfect and not connected. Mm. So what she and other people have criticized is that many of the people who got those licenses were connected to people who had connections in the industry or at the state level. So this system that you are describing in Illinois seems to be, in a word, complicated when it comes to awarding these licenses. So what do we know about who's getting them and who's making money? That is a great question and one I wish the state of Illinois had been willing to answer when I sent them my freedom of information request twice. They refused to let us see the applications, which I wanted us to dig into, saying that those were private matters. 75 licenses were distributed among 21 groups in Illinois in August 2020. Those groups were mostly listed as limited liability companies, or LLCs. The state doesn't require the LLCs to list every individual owner. And because the state shields applicants to government programs from Freedom of Information Act requests, there's no way to see the full list of members of these groups, or LLCs. So we don't know who has the licenses. We don't know how many people hold them. We don't know the races of all the people that were involved, or even the gender, or even class. What we do know is that there are no majority Black-owned dispensaries in the state of Illinois today. What we do know is there's only one dispensary on the entire South Side of Chicago, which we know to be historically Black and associated with Black people. What we do know is that out-of-state operators, which are also known as multi-state operators, have come in and picked up some of these licenses. What we do know is that people have approached people who have won these social equity licenses to buy them out. And then if and when they buy them out, they have no responsibility to adhere to any social equity. They can buy the license and run the business as they wish. Wow. Once that license is transferred. Yeah. And so on one hand, some of my interviewees say, hey, they should be allowed to sell those social equity licenses because they could be making millions that they otherwise would not get. And they don't have to take on the burden of creating a business and hoping that it's successful. There are people who 
disagree and say, well, how can we ensure equity? But Amayan says that in Illinois, equity goes beyond who's making the money. The weed business is already very white, at least the decriminalized, quote-unquote, legal business. But if you look at the people who have been arrested for weed and who are in jail for weed, that is not majority white. In fact, even in their first year of legalized recreational weed, they arrested three times as many Black people for weed-related possession offenses than they did any other race in Chicago. During the first year of recreational marijuana legalization, the Chicago Police Department arrested 2,311 Black people, 506 Latinos, 117 white, and 25 Asians and Pacific Islanders across the city. So the inequity that existed beforehand still lives even in this era of so-called legalized recreational marijuana. And you met the person who helped design this policy, Toy Hutchinson. What did she tell you? Toy Hutchinson is the former cannabis czar for the state of Illinois. She helped craft the legislation that would go on to become the law in terms of cannabis and getting recreational cannabis legalized within the state. So we used race-neutral criteria to target a population, and it actually worked, which is incredible. But why not use race? I mean, I know that you said you're using race-neutral terms, but why not, if these are the people we're trying to target and we know these are the people, why can't we just say that this is because the Because this court system and this judicial system and the country that we live in is very difficult to survive race challenges in courts. And Toy tells me that when she was helping to craft this in the state legislature, that there were people who were unwilling to sign on to the legislation unless she designated a spot for veterans. So part of that negotiation process was giving veterans five points. Amayan says that the veterans' points are the ones that created a problem for the equity license applicants. Because what happens with those veterans' points is, yes, you only get five points for being a veteran, but the veterans have to own 51% of the business. It means they're majority stakeholders. But then you don't have any majority-owned Black-owned businesses. And so what people like Belisha contend is what was meant to be a program specifically targeting Black and brown people became a veterans program. What are potential licensees saying and doing to get access to this business? There were a bunch of lawsuits around this, and they were combined into a single Super suit. And what's happened is everything's kind of frozen. As long as this is in the courts, this exists and also doesn't exist. And so people like Belisha, who is one of the people in the lawsuit, are suing to get access and the opportunity to be part of something larger. Because if weed opens up on a federal level, that will immediately mean all of these people who you could consider mom and pop shop could be immediately locked out of this business. You already see alcohol companies coming up with beverages that infuse cannabis. And so they will want to get into this industry because a weed industry is a competitor to the alcoholic beverage industry, right? And they already have millions and billions to spend on things. So this is the level where 
you or someone who may not be independently wealthy or come from generational wealth have an opportunity to be able to be a part of this business Mm -hmm. and run it in the way that you would want, but only if they let you. So Amaya, I can't let you go without asking what drew you to this story? Because I know that there is an aspect of racial inequality, which is your beat. You know, it, it, it sums up the stories you do. But what about the marijuana? I see all my stories less about race and more about context. Because they're done in the United States, race is the context for any story that you can or will tell. I know some people would disagree with that, and I would respectfully tell them that they are very wrong. I really want the audience to consider what it means for something to be legal. Can something be legal and we still arrest people for it? Can something be decriminalized and people are still being jailed? The idea that weed is legal, and yet even today in these areas where weed is legal, people are being criminalized. And so me, as someone who doesn't smoke weed and has never smoked weed, this story is still important for those same reasons. And I hope you all watch it. We will post a link on our social accounts. Amayan, thank you so much for taking the time to share this story with us. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much. And you don't have to be high to watch this piece. <laughs> you can be <laughs> But it sober. might make it better. It um, might make it better. Let me know. <laughs> Let me know if it makes it better. We love feedback over here. And that's The Take. You can find Imayan's documentary by checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. We're at AJ The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, with help from Priyanka Tove, Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is the engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. Special thanks to Sarah Nathan. We'll be back 